Podcast. Welcome to Get Real with Dr. Ronay, Doctor of Clinical Psychology and Trauma Specialist. Dr. Ronay Calvert is Executive Director of Live Treatment Concierge Services. Live Treatment provides a unique wraparound approach of concierge services in person and virtually, specifically tailored to each client with a level of effectiveness that transcends any other program. In her daily experience of guiding clients to recovery and emotional freedom, Dr. Renee Calvert gets real to shed light on subjects that have remained in the shadows with courage and compassion. Joined by Bindi Height, international spiritual coach and mentor from Ethical Change Agency, with the mission to inspire change makers and holistic healers to create collective change to make the world a better place through the power of human connection, purpose, and podcasts. It's time to get real. Hey, Ronay. Hey, Bindi. Now, today we're looking at part two of the addiction loss and recovery, one size doesn't fit all and why it shouldn't. So today we're going to look more at, you know, if you're in the life of someone who is suffering from an addiction and how you can support them and, and what your role is. So, To begin with, what can a loved one do when they love an addict? What's their role? Well, to answer that more completely, it really depends on what stage of addiction or recovery that addict is in. When someone is in active using, when they're actively abusing their drug of choice and they have no desire uh, to seek help or to listen or hear Um, from those around them who care about seeking help, about seeking recovery, about getting on a different path, then the only thing that the loved one can actually do is take care of themselves and support themselves and make sure that the injury and the illness, um, the systemic effects of addiction upon the family system, upon the, you know, system of friendship, job, whatever, does not become increasingly impacted as the addiction worsens. Eventually, what we know is that the addiction will either turn into, you know, the addiction, of course, comes with consequences. And whether that be loss of job, money, income, relationships, you can count on those consequences, legal consequences, you name it. Eventually, the addiction will spin out to that, to that degree. For those of us who love an addict, for those of us who love some, who love someone who, whom we desperately want to see recover, we wish so much that we could make that happen for them, that we could make that choice, that we could create that will within them to seek that help. Until that point, we can offer, we can hold firm boundaries, and we can absolutely indicate that without those boundaries being met, we are unwilling to put ourselves or our other loved ones at risk of the effects, the negative impact of that addiction upon ourselves or them. And I know in uh, previous conversations that we've had talking about addiction, we've we've talked about uh, people losing themselves. And um, if you're in a relationship uh, with a loved one who is in an active addiction, you can't be their gatekeeper, can you? No, it's actually impossible to do that. You will lose yourself 
And you'll find yourself most likely resenting the person who's suffering with the addiction. It's incredibly difficult, even professionally, to manage an active addiction. There are professionals such as myself who have different boundaries that I will set with a client, that, I, that my team will set with a client about showing up to a session, um, at which point throughout their struggle. For example, I will not conduct a session where someone is not sober. I don't believe that that's ethical. Um, that is a firm boundary that I set. When I know someone has relapsed and they come to me seeking help, I absolutely will answer that call. And that is a stage of addiction where a loved one, not just a professional, also has a different role that they play. Oftentimes those roles can get confused. People may think that their role in holding a boundary and in not speaking to someone or in protecting themselves means continuing to hold that boundary to that same level, even when the addict is seeking help and is seeking recovery. And that is where the script for me changes completely. When an addict is coming to you as a loved one seeking help for themselves, that is a call that is to be met with compassion and love. We try to leave ourselves and whatever damage has been done to us out of the picture because there is no, there is no capacity for them to deal with our feelings at that time. Their journey during recovery is going to include needing to clean up that wreckage. They will need professional help to begin to clean up the wreckage of their past which includes abuses and wrongdoings and anything like that um, that exists within their past. You know, each person is individual. Um, there may be certain things that someone has done to a loved one that are entirely inexcusable. And being an addict does not excuse them and does not demand of a loved one that they drop everything to help a person who is unsafe for them to be around. Let me be clear about that where a person is safe enough to be helped. The opinion I hold strongly is that the help be offered, that shame be excluded, that why didn't you sooner or any of the things leading up to that point be left for a later time and that you seek quality care for the person that is reaching out to you. Help for addiction comes in many different shapes and sizes. It is not a one-size-fits-all. Some people need a residential setting where they literally go into treatment and are watched 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It may be medically necessary for that to be the beginning step for that individual. My best advice is that whichever facility or whichever program, a wraparound program such as ours that comes to you and works around your schedule, um, where once medical and you know, you know obvious emergency situations are handled and we're dealing with deeper rooted causes and effects of the addictive process, you know there are so many different types of ways in which that can be dealt with on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. But what's most important is that that person have buy-in into the program that they are going into, that they are making a personal investment. They may not have it financially, and if they don't, and they're asking that of a loved one, it needs to be understood 
that that can be paid back if, if there is an ability to do so, but that certainly the investment to do the work of recovery, the desire to, you know, find their path is there. And that the placement of that individual, when that they actually have buy-in into the program they're going into. If they don't trust the professionals that they're talking to, if they're not willing to get real with the professionals they're talking to, if there is something about the interview process on the phone that leads them to believe that the individuals they're speaking to are not sincere or in it for the wrong reasons, they need to be allowed to trust their gut on that. They are still people. They are still people capable of utilizing their intuition and their desire for help also needs to be a major consideration in seeking treatment. Yeah. And it's not something that someone can be forced into, like particularly if you're a loved one and you just want to see them stop using, um, you can't force them. They have to actually be ready to actually heal. If only we could force those that we loved. Um, the reality is that misery loves company. Mm. And oftentimes those that are using, those that are in their addiction are surrounding themselves by people who carry similar resentments, who have alienated loved ones, who have alienated jobs, success stories, who have fallen from the ranks that they used to have in society. Um, They're carrying enormous amount of shame and they are finding like-minded, like-behaving individuals because within that network, within that social group, they don't have anything to be ashamed of. They look to their right, they look to their left, they find people acting and behaving and thinking just as they do. Um, What they don't need is more shame. What we come to learn in recovery is that just as much as misery loves company and those that are using enjoy the process of keeping others using around them because it benefits them right? You, no one wants to use alone. No one wants to believe that they're the only one with a problem. And quite unfortunately, that could be nothing further from the truth. We have an enormous, enormous pro- problem in the United States, especially with opiates and painkillers that are flooding our borders at all levels, all the time. Um, it's an absolute nationwide epidemic um, that is killing People, you know, ranging from, you know, they get younger and younger by the day. Um, And it's terrifying. And they're not bad people. They're people who have made very, very scary choices. And we want nothing more than to rescue them and guide them away from those choices. But they must be ready and they must allow it. Um, Like I mentioned previously, the consequences we can put in place, the boundaries we can put in place... Um, those are absolutely necessary. And then we get to a point where we can only do so much and no more. We can't actually make that choice for them. It does not work. When someone chooses recovery and they are doing it for someone else, that recovery does not last. It is behavioral. It is something that they are doing to please that person or to get that person off their back, but they have not internalized the desire for recovery. And therefore, they're changing the behavior, but they're not looking at the root causes. They're not looking at the internal struggle. They're doing a very, very baseline or cursory uh, treatment over something that is actually so much deeper and life-threatening than they are acknowledging at that time. 
So their buy-in to their own treatment is absolutely necessary. It needs to be one that is not shame-based. It needs to be an inclusionary process. And it needs to be a placement that they feel is the right fit for them and that they can see themselves actually being successful in. For me personally, I don't think that any problem of any size ever got solved in 30 or 60 days. Any program that suggests that someone is going to leave their, you know, cured or leave their addiction free, um, that is where the work really just begins. You exist, you learn what your problem is, you learn to begin discussing it, and you step out into the world again. You may be medically managed, you may be medically stable, but you are not societally stable to go back to the life that you were living, to go back into the very stressors or the very coping mechanisms, the poor coping mechanisms that you developed in your addiction to begin with. That's where we need help on the ground, surrounding us from all angles, as as much help as we can get, because real life is where the challenges really lie before us. How many changes may we need to make in the life that we were living before as we knew it? Um, how many growth areas do we have ahead of us? And the wonderful thing that we find is that in seeking new opportunities and new people, we learn that while misery loves company, victory also loves company. Victory loves to celebrate and rejoice in recovery and celebrate your successes and elevate you for making the life changes that you deserve to make because you've chosen life instead of stagnancy and instead of death. Um, and death comes in many forms when we're talking about addiction. It may not come in the form of physically dying, but oftentimes we die intern internally. We have a spiritual death. The light behind our eyes has gone off long before our bodies actually give out. And for loved ones seeing that, it was a terrifying experience that I empathize with deeply. I wish I could grant myself and everyone working with this population a magic wand that would just say, you now are going to love yourself enough to choose this different path. It has to happen because something within that person says, okay, I'm ready. What I'm doing isn't working. Show me another way. And in a relationship, um, you know, if you're dealing with an addiction, um, quite often there's a lot of secrecy and shame. Um, but it can also be that the partner may be a trigger for the addiction, uh, whether it be, you know, um, you know, arguments that they have might trigger off um, that addiction, or they may also be in that same addiction. How do you deal with that? It's very interesting. There's an expression that uh, oftentimes people who work in our field say that you can use together, but you get sober apart. Mm. I don't always agree, but I do agree that you need to be like-minded. And what that means is if you have a person in your life who wants you to remain using because they would rather see you use with them than be sober on your own, then what they're literally asking you to do in your relationship to them is prioritize the, the drug life or the using life or the drinking life that you're living with them over an opportunity to actually survive. And wherever that is the bond, 
we have to get real with ourselves and understand that what looks like love and what looks like compassion or friendship has now been thwarted and twisted into a dependency on one another. That the dependency on one another is equal to the dependency to using the drug together. That that is the bond that has been forged. The bond that has been forged is a painful tie that you both share to, to doing your drug of choice, even to seeing one another's lows, um, to saying, you know, oh my God, that time that, you know, you overdosed in my arms and I had to call 911. And it's amazing how trauma can bond us to one another. And we feel like no one else in the world could possibly understand that experience. It's kind of like being in Plato's cave. And all of a sudden you walk and you see the light outside and you realize, oh my goodness, there was all this out here that I wasn't paying attention to. A drug den is very much like Plato's cave. A drug den can be as simple as literally a drug den or it can be as gorgeous as a, a sunlit mansion in Malibu, California. Um, it is the dungeon of our mind that makes that situation true. And being alone with a drug and a person is not being alone with a drug and a person. It's being alone with a drug and another drug. Mm. Mm. And I think if, if you find yourself in that situation, you really need to look at uh, what is that relationship? Is it, is it love or is it just your drinking buddy or, or your, your drug pal? Like, yeah. And actually there assess are, that. Yeah, absolutely. There are, there are relationships that pre-existed any drug use or, or alcoholism, um, you know, that can recover because there, there was a, a more substantial foundation. Uh, there, there was a life built um, that can continue, um, that there's a life to go back to. There's mm-hmm. a life on the other side. But it does require a separation from the drug. And, and because our work to, to recover is such an internal process, we have to be willing to do two separate processes when we are in a couple in a relationship and we are also using with that person, which means we have to be doing couples work as well as individual work. And that can often be extremely challenging to do at the same time. Mm. Oftentimes people have family members or friends who will say, you have to leave that person in order to get sober. And my advice is not always that. My advice is to examine each and every case individually and say, Sometimes someone's greatest motivation is the fact that their spouse, partner, best friend is willing to take steps toward their recovery that the other person may not have been willing to do if they did not know that their their loved one was going to be waiting on the other side and doing the work themselves too. Uh, It really is a step-by-step process, but it definitely makes things more complicated when you have people who are both suffering from addiction, have, having gone through that addicted life together, need to come out of that addicted life together and begin anew. The relationship that will exist after recovery will be a new relationship. It will not be a return to the relationship that preexisted using. It will be an entirely new relationship because the skill set of communication, the skill set of insight, 
that you need to have into yourself, into what brought you there, to those lows, to that shame, to choosing those coping mechanisms, the skill set of the relationships that you entered into and avoided, looking at all of those things, examining all those things, that changes a person. And just as you can outgrow a person who's not growing and moving at the same speed with you, you can also outgrow a person in your recovery Mm -hmm. if that person is not also doing that same amount of work. And it is a difficult amount of work to do, but I can think of nothing that is more worthwhile to do than to get your own power back and stop giving your life away to a substance or to, to a coping mechanism that is actively destroying every part of you. Mm. And coming back to, you know, loving someone who, who is actively using, um, I mean, it can be hard to trust them when uh, things start to fall apart and it impacts you. I mean, how can you keep that trust with someone when they're continuing um, to let you down? There's an expression that we have in the addiction world of when it's an addict or alcoholic lying, when their lips are moving. And it's a very shame-based approach to look at someone who's suffering with that affliction in that way. Um, There is a lot of lying and there is a lot of manipulation that goes on to keep the disease of addiction and alcoholism alive. It comes from a place of shame. It comes from a place of secrecy, and it can only survive in shame and secrecy. Once it's brought to light, it can no longer survive in that way. So that relationship will have to morph, either because they're going to get honest with the person that loves them, or because they're going to further avoid them and push away, because they need to keep the darkness around them, and they've now been exposed. For the person in the relationship, the trust begins when the desire for recovery begins, when things are no longer about shame and secrecy, but things are about a real conversation. Yes, I've been using. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Um, Yes, I've been using. I'm scared. I'm not ready for help. Yes, I've been using. It's your problem. Leave me alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, things can go in many, many different directions, but what we do know is at different points in time that conversation with that same person, each one of those conversations may occur with that same person at various points in their recovery process. And what we do as loved ones is damage control for ourselves and those around us, damage control for the addict themselves, not seeking to shame or, you know, show any sort of hatred uh, toward the person themselves, but not ignoring the impact, the, the awful impact of watching somebody slowly dying in front of us and not being afraid to share that that does have an impact on us. Um, the how and the when and where you share that, that is why we have professional help because it is so different and difficult to navigate that situation on your own, to know about timing, to know about when you should or should not intervene in the situation, how to do so, um, what the appropriate steps to take are for that particular individual, and seeking that help from people who have the right credentials and from people who you find trustworthy 
um, from reputable sources. Um, that's where you really want to do your research as a loved one and really not be afraid to ask the questions that you would want asked for you. Just like any doctor's appointment, you never walk into a surgeon by yourself in a pre-op. You never allow a loved one to walk into a path of recovery by themselves without really investigating where they're going, how that place operates, and who runs it. So if you were to give someone some advice on the number one thing that they could do to support a loved one who has recognized they're ready for change, what would it be? It would be to ask them what kind of help they felt they were most wanting and needing. Um, If it was apparent that they absolutely needed to recover from addiction and were actively physiologically addicted, then you always have to start with someplace that is very licensed and very experienced at the detoxification process. That is always step one. They have to safely detox from the drug they're on. Oftentimes people think that they can detox alone, um, that they can detox, it'll just be painful, it'll just be uncomfortable. They can often mistake alcohol for being a lot less risky to detox from than opioids or painkillers or other drugs. Alcohol is actually the most dangerous drug to detox from on your own. You can cause, it can cause seizures, heart attacks, and lead to death uh, in people of all age ranges and without pre-existing conditions. So it is extremely important that the detoxification process, how and where that happens, be selected very, very carefully, and that those people, that facility is monitoring your loved one 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and should have absolutely no problem with you inquiring about their level of licensure and their level of experience in doing that. The second step for longer-term treatment is to really investigate what that person is looking to get out of the recovery process. What works for them? Are they looking for a program that is trauma-based? Are they looking for a program that is gender-based? Maybe they do better than all women or all men's facility. Maybe they need a placement that is LGBTQ+, not only accepting, but devoted to the issues and the struggles of that community. Listen, hear, be willing to take in that information and do your very, very best to find a fit to get that person the help they need as very soon as possible. And that's such an important point that you raised there is, you know, that in that detox process, um, it's unknown what the person will experience in that process. Um, and there's also the mental health side side effects from that um, that can be a part of that recovery. So having professional support is vital. Absolutely vital. I, can, I cannot state that enough. Um, anyone who's trying to manage that on their own or believes that someone can be walked through that because mom or dad or sister or brother overseeing them are really, really playing Russian roulette with a a living human being. Uh, It's not advisable um, for any reason ever. And uh, and as per every episode, uh, we share a song uh, to help tell our story. In this episode, what is your song, Ronay? 
Well, an absolutely heart-wrenching song for me, but that reminds me of the struggle of addiction is so close to my heart, is Joey by Concrete Blonde. Lovely song. And uh, mine is Old Ways by Demi Lovato. And, oh, gosh, if you listen to the words of that one, um, if you're, you know, helping someone through their recovery, yeah, might be some tears. Um, you can find that playlist on Spotify. Just search for Get Real with Dr. Ron A. And the meditation for this episode, Find Your Inner Peace. You can find that one on Insight Timer. Thanks for getting real with me, Dr. Ron A. Thanks for getting real with me, Bindi. Thank you for tuning in to Get Real with Dr. Ron A. If you've loved the show and would like to experience coaching with coaches like Dr. Ronay or Bindi through Live Treatment Concierge Services, visit livetreatmentvip.com. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us, from renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric Acid.